Hands up if you're enjoying more than you thought you would be our walk through the book of Revelation. Yes, look at this. Most of you, actually, to be fair. Um, that's good. I mean, I, I have to confess, as we know, it is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, but I hope that as we go through it, you'll be learning, um, like I am as I'm journeying through it with you, even more of the riches of this book. And we've looked at uh, chapters 1 to 3 so far. We began um, in the first week just talking a bit about what the book of Revelation is all about, what apocalyptic literature is about. It's a bit weird. We named it. We talked about symbolism. We talked about the danger of taking things a bit too literally, like dragons with six heads and three horns and all that stuff. And then Roger spoke to us um, a couple of weeks ago, I think, about the letters to the churches. Um, and today we are looking at Revelation 4 and a bit of chapter 5. So those of you who are fully on board with the reading plan, you won't have read chapter 5 yet. No, never mind. Um, you still have to read it, but we're not going to... Uh, We'll be reading a bit, because they go together, but more on that later. We'll be doing the reading in a sec, but can I show you the first slide up first, if that's possible? We'll, we'll do the reading in a minute. Is there a PowerPoint? Oh, the next one. No, oh, that's really annoying. Okay, never mind. I had quite some pretty pictures to show you, but I didn't put them on there. Never mind. I could act them out. Um, but I won't. Uh, okay, never mind. Well, let's dive into chapter four. Never mind. And I'll put the pictures on Facebook later if you want to look at them. They weren't that um, exciting, really. So let's dive into chapter four of the book of Revelation, shall we? If you've got it in front of you on screen, on a, on a mini screen, or in a, an old-fashioned paper version, uh, do turn to it right at the back of the Bible. And it says after this. So remember, uh, John's had this vision. Uh, John's written this letter to all the different churches. And then he says this. After this, I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Circling the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the thrones came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the centre around the throne were four living creatures, covered in eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne 
and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne, probably more successfully than our children did. Um, They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. Lord God, as we dive into this chapter and a half of Revelation, we want to know you more. We remember the first word of of Revelation, which talks about unveiling, the unveiling of Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, please come, show us Jesus this morning, we pray. Amen. (coughs) You'll have to excuse me sounding like this. I haven't got a cold, but I've got hay fever. So just name it out there. So I'll probably get stuffier and stuffier the more excited I get. So sorry about that. Okay, we have, I want you to imagine in your head four pictures, because they're not on the screen. Picture number one. The moon landings. Hands up if you saw it on the telly. Actually, oh, okay, go on. Let, let's, let's show our ages. Wow. Some of you, that's great. Moon landings. Picture number two, the pyramids. What, you're putting your hand up because you saw them being constructed? <laughs> or because you can imagine them? Okay, that's fine. Moon landings. I, mean, I know some of you are very uh, mature in years, but that's pushing it. Pyramids. Uh, Number three, a flat earth. Oh, we're getting funny now, aren't we? Picture number four, COVID and the pandemic. And and all these four things are kind of linked together because all four of them, you you can go on rabbit holes down the internet. So for the moon landings, you can watch some really interesting, actually, articles about were the moon landings faked? How How was the flag fluttering? How were the footprints and all that stuff? So you could do that. If you want to distract yourself this afternoon, be careful, but, but you can look at it. Do it with someone sensible. Picture number two, the pyramids. You can find all sorts of articles about how it must have been aliens that made the pyramids because people living all that time ago couldn't possibly be clever enough like we are. I mean, a bit, what's the word, a bit Eurocentric, isn't it? But how on earth could they build the pyramids? Picture number three, a flat earth. There are, a lot, there are some people out there that would say, we're not a planet, we're a, we're a flat Earth. And fourthly, there are some that would say that COVID was just um, kind of a man-made way of controlling the population. Now, whatever you think about all those four things, and lots of other things as well that are similar to that, the, the one thing that they all have in common is that they have an underlying question of who's in charge? It can't really be the government who's in charge. Surely there must be some ultra-state that's actually in charge. You know, Biden isn't the actual president. Secretly, Donald Trump is still the president. That's what some people are thinking. There, there are some, ways of, there are some um, uh, ways of thinking that say that actually giant lizards from another planet are currently secretly running the earth. I mean, it's probably on Netflix somewhere if you want to look at it. But, but what all these documentaries and all these things that we might go, that's a funny thing to believe. They all have this underlying question. Who's in charge? Who's the boss? Who's the one actually pulling the strings behind the scenes? Who's the one that's actually on the throne and actually in charge? And when we dive into Revelation 4 this morning, that's the, the kind of thing that I think sums up that, this chapter. Who's in charge? Who's the one on the throne? Who's the one pulling the strings? Who's the one that's really worthy of our time and attention? And this is where, in the book of Revelation, it can get a bit 
weird. Hopefully on the way in, you've got one of our little kind of sheets to help you. You can fill that in as we go. You might want to take it home and listen again. I know there are quite a lot of life groups that are listening again during the week and doing the questions on the back. If you're not in a life group and you'd like to be, talk to Julie. She's over there. little plug there. Um, life groups meet up once a week. They pray. They read the Bible. They do life together. We'd love to get you in one if you're not in one. But this is where it gets a bit strange, and this is where those sheets might be helpful to record kind of where we're going today. So, so last week, the letters that Roger shared with us were quite, not easy to interpret, but, but straightforward in terms of they are letters. <laughs> so so, so that there's not a huge amount of weird and wacky stuff in there. There's stuff that you could get excited about when you look at the actual context, as Roger did with the white stones. Okay, I did listen um, secretly. I was, up, I was upstairs behind the curtain listening in. Um, so we can get excited about things like that. But, but this is where it gets a bit weird with horns and pictures and things like, I heard a voice that was a trumpet. Well, not being funny, if I, was to pre- if I stood here talking to you like a trumpet, it'd be funny for 30 seconds, but then you'd get a bit weirded out by it. So what does all this stuff actually mean? So this is where we get a bit apocalyptic. This is where the, the, the symbolism is important. This is where the whole narrative of the Bible is important. Uh, and this is where time as well gets a little bit weird. And so this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at that chapter 4. What is worship? Who's on the throne? What is it all about? And then we're going to end by thinking, what does that mean for us here today? Here at St. T's, as we're called to be a church that's gathering for worship. That's one of our values, that we value gathering together, mainly on a Sunday, but also throughout the week, to worship. Why? Why do we do it? What's it all about? I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 4 again. And as I do it, not the whole thing, don't worry, but as I do it, I'd like you to keep an eye out for, or an ear out <laughs> for symbolism, for pictures, for things that might allude to other parts of the Bible. And we're going to dive into a few of them. Let's read it again. Revelation 4. I'll start from verse 3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white. They had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. There's so much other stuff we could get into, but we haven't got a huge amount of time, unfortunately, this morning. But as I was reading it, keep those things that you think jumped out at you in your head. There were two things that I want to pin our talk on this morning, our thinking of Revelation with all this imagery, there are two things that I think as a, a launch pad, really, actually, into the rest of Revelation. So two of the things that we're going to be looking at today aren't just useful today. They'll be useful for the next uh, few weeks as we look at Revelation. And number one is the fact that Je- uh, Revelation 4 tells us there is a throne and God sat on it. <laughs> it it's not a deep theological point here, really. The throne of God is threaded throughout history. It's not just that the writer of Revelation pops up and goes, oh, guess what? I've just realized God is on the throne. 
But actually what the writer of Revelation here does is state a simple but key theological truth that we can see threaded throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament as well. The throne of God comes up 43 times in the book of Revelation. God reigns. He's worthy. That's the one that we come to worship this morning. So that's the first thing that I want us to think about. And the second thing linked to that is that the imperial powers don't like it. That's a good word. The, the powers of the world, particularly Rome back then, but same today, the powers don't like the fact that actually someone else is in charge. So I know we might think those people with conspiracy theories are a little bit strange, but actually we're not too far away from them because the government aren't in charge. It's the Lord who's on the throne. That's not a conspiracy theory. It's evidently clear. Jesus is Lord and he's on the throne. So let's look at a bit more what we think about that, that first bit. The throne of God threaded throughout the story of history. I wonder if I was reading that passage to you, there might have been different things that popped out. And they're on the sheet if you want to cheat. Things like lightnings, rumbling of thunder, the throne, the heavenly council, the colours of Jasper and Cornelian, the 24 elders. These are things that don't just come up in Revelation chapter 4. Reading Revelation chapter 4 on its own is a bit like what happens to me when I come in from a very important church meeting. We have very important meetings here. They're very serious. We get down to business. Bless you, whoever sneezed at that opportune moment when I say we do very serious things. But I come in from, from work at nine o'clock, half nine, ten, into my house, and Kimberly sat there watching an episode of Grey's Anatomy. Hands up if you're a Grey's Anatomy fan. Look at three of you. Okay, four of you. That's okay. I don't really get it. But she sits there, and I come in from a hard day at work in this place, putting up with you lots. And I know, thanks. And I step in, and, and I'm eager to see my wife. And she greets me with a, no, don't talk to me. Um, I'm, watch, I'm in the middle of watching Grey's. And um, yeah, so, um, is, is that, apparently that's really important. And so I sit with her and watch it. And I've learned that what I don't do is say, who's that? Why did that happen? Who's she? What does that word mean? I just sit there. I shut up for once. I'm quiet, believe it or not. All things are possible. I sit there and I listen. And you know what? To be fair, I understand most of it. I can see the episode and I can see what's happened. But what I don't get is when she goes, oh, and I went, what? It was just a person. She's like, no, but three episodes ago, this happened or whatever. And there's a bit like that with Revelation 4. We can read Revelation 4 and we can understand God is in charge. He's on the throne. He is Lord. He's the worthy lamb that was slain. But when we take a step back and we look at the whole story of Scripture, aka when I stop and watch the whole of Grey's Anatomy from episode 1 to episode whatever it is, I understand the intricacies. I can understand why those, those colours of Jasper and Cornelian are really interesting. Why the number 24 is really interesting. So what we're going to do is do a little bit of that with these things. So the first thing that might have jumped out at us is lightnings, rumblings and thunder. And I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, but I wonder if as we are thinking about that, you can think of other times, particularly in the Old Testament, when there were rumblings of thunder when there was lightning. I might think of Moses and the burning bush. I might think of, of Exodus 19, the giving of the law, when God said to his people that there's no other gods but me, and this is how 
you should live. A significant time, actually, of God giving, giving his laws and rules of judgment. So for those of us that are reading Revelation, it's, it's really important to look back and think, that's really interesting, actually. That, that all the way back in Exodus 19, we're getting illusions of, of lightnings, rumblings, and thunder. Maybe we thought about this idea of God's throne not being just tucked away in Genesis 4, but actually this idea of a heavenly throne being threaded throughout the whole of the Bible. So in 1 Kings 22, the prophet says, Hear the word of the Lord, all the way back in 1 Kings. Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. The multitude of heaven standing around him. There were lots of other times that you might think of a throne as well. Linked to that, we might think of this heavenly council. Now, this is really interesting. And I've got a book on my bookshelf that I'm waiting to read when I have a spare day about it because it's quite cool, but I'm not going to jump down rabbit holes yet. But, but this sense of, of a heavenly council that sits with God and kind of doesn't judge with him because he's the one that judges, but there's still a sense of this council of elders sitting round the throne. We don't just get that in Revelation 4. Back in Psalm 89, the heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of, your, of the holy ones. Without getting too complex, that probably almost definitely talks about angelic beings. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. So this sense of God being on the throne, this council of elders, he's the one on the throne pronouncing judgment. You might have thought of Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 as well, by the way, when we think of that council around uh, the throne. Maybe we noticed the colours. Maybe you didn't really uh, think about them, but you thought, oh, colours, now they're important. And remember what I said two weeks ago, nothing really happens in Revelation by mistake. Everything means something. And so these colours, colours of Jasper and Cornelian, are brown and red. And here's something that I found out this week that's really interesting. I don't know all this stuff, by the way, remember. I'm just like a week ahead of you. I'm just, I've got the time to open the books and, and read about it. So please don't think, oh my goodness, Arvika knows everything. He doesn't. He just has time to, to read and then tell you guys about it. So we all get excited. Uh, so these colours are brown and red. And, and there's a sense there of these colours being fiery colours, fire of judgment. But what's even more interesting is that those two colours were really significant for priests back in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, priests wouldn't rock up in jeans and a check shirt. Uh, most Anglican vicars don't wear jeans and a check shirt. Uh, they'll turn up in their robes, won't they? And if you've been to the cathedral, you'll see that very often the, the vestments for particularly communion are kind of very brightly coloured, quite expensive, quite not flamboyant, but, but very highly designed. And one of the reasons is, is because of the Old Testament vestments that the priests used to wear. That's one of the reasons I don't like wearing them, uh, but that's a different sermon. But these two colours were the two colours that were on the ephod. The ephod was a holy name for an apron that the priests would wear. You might think, why do the priests wear an apron? Without getting too grim, the priests were the ones sacrificing the animals. <laughs> so they were like vicars slash butchers, okay? So they wore these aprons to kind of stop too much splattering happening. And so these aprons were called ephods, and they were beautifully designed 
And the, one of the colours at the beginning was uh, jasper, and the colour at the end is carnelian. There were 12 of these stones. So these stones symbolised the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why the Old Testament priests would wear them. And so what happens here then, the writer of Revelation says these colours, and we go, oh, they're pretty colours. But, but back then, that those people who, were, who had read the Jewish scriptures and were now following Jesus would go, oh my goodness, that this same God that brought us out of Israel, the same God that gave us the law at Mount Sinai, the same God who the priest wore these immaculate clothing to creep into his presence, if we could just get into his presence uh, through all that he has done, through nothing that we do. And they've got these amazing uh, aprons on <laughs> with these colours on. That's the same God that's now on the throne saying, come to me, all of you, all tribes of Israel and beyond. This sense of openness to the presence of God. You might have noticed the rainbow, a reminder of God's commitment and faithfulness and judgment and holiness. It was being uh, uh, used this morning as we worshipped. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people, but also... Let's not forget the story of Noah's Ark. It's not some pretty kid's fairy tale. It's God's anger against sin and what happens when we turn away from him. It's not a comfortable, fluffy story at all. A rainbow, the reminder of God's faithfulness and his holiness. Finally, with this bit, maybe we notice 24 elders around the throne. Now, this bit's interesting as well. So we know that numbers are significant. The number 12 talks about the fullness of God's power. That's kind of generally what the, the, the number 12 means. So what about 24? Does that mean double fullness? I'm not sure you can have double fullness, but maybe it, it could mean that. But I think a better reading is that this actually is symbolic of, of two lots of 12 people. It's, it's the tribes of Israel on one side, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 apostles. They pop up later on in Revelation 21. So it might be the writer saying, look, these are the significant people or saints of, of the Lord, as it were. Not everyone agrees with that. The problem with me thinking that is that that limits the 24 elders to people that are just from a Jewish background. And actually what we see in Revelation is that God's justice and love, the unveiling of Jesus is for everyone. Other people would point to it just meaning fullness. Fullness of fullness. All of God's people, all of us, the elders, around the throne. So there's a couple of different readings there. But whatever we come to, it's significant. It means God's people are around the throne. So we've got the throne. We've got all this amazing, funny stuff happening around this, the throne. The, the fullness of God's people, the worship that's carrying on. All these uh, symbols that aren't just there for the fun of it, but they mean something. So that's the first bit we looked at, that God's throne is threaded throughout the story. It doesn't just pop up in Revelation chapter 4. It's all the way back in the Old Testament. The Lord is on the throne. He is in charge. That's good news this morning, um, I hope, for all of us. The second thing then was that the imperial powers didn't like it. Jesus being on the throne, the Lord being in charge, isn't always good news. And there's some really interesting stuff when you look at this chapter and look at Rome, again, that I found out this week. Rome didn't like anyone else being given the glory, particularly those in charge, the emperors. Caesars didn't like anyone else getting the glory. They didn't mind other religions. They didn't mind pagan religions going on. They kind of said, do what you want, but make sure that every now and again you come to the, the emperor 
and give him the offering or say that he's in charge or, or submit to him. And that's why Christians would get in trouble because they went, no, other pagan religions were like, yeah, fine, whatever. But the, the call of the Christian was actually, no, there's only one throne and there's only one God on it. And I know today we probably won't get thrown into jail for, in this country for saying that Jesus is Lord. But there are countries around the world, remember, where that is the case. There are countries today where you could not gather like this. You couldn't go down the street holding a Bible. Um, countries, in Korea, uh, countries like Korea and China where church buildings are being destroyed by the government. Uh, demonic attacks really going on. So this isn't just tucked away back in first century Rome. This is happening to our brothers and sisters across the world um, today. So what do we think about this bit of the Bible in terms of the Roman authorities then? So one example is the 24 elders. So we've looked at them and we've said, okay, those 24 elders tucked away in the Old Testament um, and maybe the apostles, that's what we think. But what's also really interesting is that there's a double meaning here because what emperors would have is they would have 12, I know that's not 24, but hold your horses, they would have 12 attendants. With them, So at that point in time, the Roman emperors would go around with 12 attendants. These attendants would be their bodyguards. They'd carry out judgment for them. They'd often hold an axe to symbolize that they were the ones in control, almost like a council that would be around God carrying out his bidding. And you might think, oh, but that's 12, not 24. And you'd be right. But there was one cheeky emperor that came along and he changed it from 12 to 24. His name was Domitian. He's come up before. Another reason why I think it makes sense that Revelation was written around that time. So not only is this verse in chapter 4 saying Jesus is on the throne and that throne is threaded, threaded throughout history, it's also saying, it's also threaded throughout now. That we have the Lord who has the council of elders around him. He's the one in charge, not the Roman, Roman emperor with 24 attendants that try and be like him, that try and set themselves up as some kind of demi fake God. 24 elders in Roman authority. There's also something else. The, when an, the emperors loved pomp and ceremony. And as far back as Alexander the Great, what would happen is that when an emperor el entered the city, the elders of the city, the kind of people in charge, the council of the city, they'd rush out and they'd meet the emperor and they'd be dressed in, guess what colour they'd be dressed in? White, elders dressed in white. They'd have something on their head. They'd have crowns. You'd never guess what they do with their crowns when they see the emperor coming. Yes, they cast them before the emperor as a, as a symbol of, of submission to say, hey, emperor, all of our power is yours, O oh great one. Our, our city is yours, O oh great one. Please come in. A bit of bowing and scraping. So once again, you have this kind of dichotomy, really. In Revelation 4, Jesus is the one on the throne. We'll come to him later. God is the one on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. We cast our crowns before him. But at the very same time, the emperor and his minions, that's the same thing happening to them. That in Rome, the people are casting their crowns before the emperor. Finally, thinking about Rome, the ruling emperor, uh, emperors of Rome demanded respect and adulation. They weren't meant to call themselves Lord and God. They weren't really allowed to. But when people did it, they didn't tell them off. 
So lots of them really liked being called Lord and God. In fact, you'll never guess which emperor. Actually, there's manuscript evidence that he referred to himself as Lord and God. His name begins with D. Our friend Domitian pops up again. That he's the one that loved it when people lavished this title on him, Lord and God. So this throne room then in Revelation 4 reminds us what worship is. It's joining in with the story of God's people, that the whole narrative of Scripture back in the Old Testament through with the, with the apostles to today. We join in worshipping the one who's on the throne. And we do so knowing that the ruling authorities won't like it. I know we're not back in Rome. And when whoever is that's in authority comes along, when Wendy Morton comes through, we don't have to bow and straight before her, as it were, whoever uh, is in charge. But there's still a sense, I think, for those of us following Jesus, that it's a bit countercultural to say there's one throne and there's one king. It's a bit countercultural to submit all things to him. Next week, we're starting our giving week. How countercultural to be asked to give money? To, I mean, you know, when you see charity uh, people in the street, I was about to call them charity muggers then, that's the wrong word, but you see those people in the street with buckets. Am I the only one that avoids them? It's just not the done thing. You don't ask people for it. You, everything we do as Christians is countercultural before the throne of God. And so we're coming into land now by thinking about this phrase that almost calls us to worship in chapter 5. So chapter 4, the throne room of God, all this imagery surrounding it that, that leads us into a greater understanding of what it is when we gather in this place to worship. Sometimes when I'm sitting here singing, I look up and, and I think of how many songs these roofs would have heard. And I know the church is only, you know, 40, 50 years old. But just imagine how many songs and choruses and prayers these bricks will have heard. And some of the lump gets in my throat. And then we read this and we think of this eternal sense of, of actually what we do when we worship isn't just here in this physical space, but we join in around the throne room with the angels who never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. So that's what worship is. Chapter 5 gives us a hint of, what, of, of who we worship, of why we worship. And it's centered around a lamb. I'll just read the first few verses from it. I'm not going to jump into all of it because you'll get upset because I know you haven't read it yet. We'll go from verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Don't get too distracted by the seals. We'll look at them next week. And then I saw the lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by those four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures fell down before the Lamb. They were holding golden bowls of incense and they sang a new song. Not only is it countercultural to worship Jesus, it's also countercultural to worship Jesus, the slain Lamb. This is no glorious emperor riding in on a white horse. This is Jesus, God Himself, who was nailed to the cross. What kind of God is this, friends, that we worship this morning? A God that would allow Himself to be killed for us. 
But this is where true power lies. This is where honor and authority is found. Not in the roaring lion, not in the, the kind of uh, civic power, not in the power of Rome, but it's found in the lamb which was sacrificed. There is violence involved, but it's, it's the violence which is endured by the lamb, not inflicted by his people. And so rather than the, la- the lion who tears his, his prey to shreds, we see the lamb who himself was torn to shreds for us. He's the one that we gather to worship. He's the lamb that was slain. The effects of that are once and for all. They are ongoing. It's a definitive act. You know, the the death of Jesus on the cross has cosmic effects. We often only really talk about the cross at Easter or focus on it, but, but what the cross has done for us is actually central to everything we do, everything we say, everything we believe, everything we sing. We continue to make mistakes, we continue to mess up, but the sacrifice of the lamb means that the once for all sacrifice allows our sin to be nailed to the cross. So friends, this morning, as I say most weeks, if you're sat here or you're at home and you're thinking, I'm not good enough for Jesus. Well, in many ways, none of us are actually, but, but nothing is too difficult for him to forgive. No, no one is too far gone for him to reach out to. No sin is too deep that he can't reach down and pull you up. And so this morning, if you're sitting here and thinking, I'm not sure, I think I'm too much of a bad person. The Lamb of God, the one that was slain, loves you. He died for you. He calls you to follow him and worship him today. Thinking of the Lamb that was slain is a strange thing, but there's so much imagery again here. It's a bit like one episode of Grey's Anatomy. No, let's take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what a Lamb stands for throughout the Old Testament. In the Exodus, it was a lamb that released God's people. Isaiah speaks of a lamb in chapter 53. It was a lamb that leads to atonement. It was a lamb that was slain in the temple by the priests. And I want to end with this really weird bit of imagery. We read of seven horns. We read, didn't we? A lamb who had seven horns and seven eyes. I mean, there's some weird pictures out there, if you want to Google it later, of a lamb with seven horns. and seven. It just looks a bit freaky. But again, remember, this isn't li- I, I think this isn't literal, this is symbolic. We won't get to heaven and there won't be this lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. It's, it's a symbolic reminder of, of all that the Lamb of God did for us. So seven, that symbol of completeness. Horns, a symbol of power. So it's Jesus who is fully in control. He is, again, fully on the throne. Seven eyes, he's the one that sees everything. He doesn't just see a little bit. He doesn't just see you on your good day. He doesn't just see you you on your bad day. He's not just there to give you a little tap around the head when you've done something wrong. He's there seeing you all the time, and he loves you, and he calls you. Zechariah, this is really interesting. Zechariah uh, chapter 3, verse 9 says this. God is speaking, and he says, Look at this, this stone, says God, that I set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone. And I'm going to put an inscription on it, says the Lord, and I'll remove the sin of this land in a single day. So back in Zechariah 3, when the prophet recalls the words of, of the Almighty, there are seven eyes, and I'll remove the sin of the land in a single day. This could be a whole other sermon. Joshua in Greek means Jesus. So here you have 
uh, Zechariah speaking the word of God in front of Joshua, who in some ways is like a kind of motif or a a sign of Jesus. I mean, he existed. He's a real person. But he's also like a, a looking forward to all that Jesus was. And God says to Joshua, the motif of Jesus, there are seven eyes and you'll remove the sin of the world in a single day. What did Jesus do on the cross? He removed the sin of the world in a single day. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. I'm finishing now, you'll be pleased to hear. There's lots going on in these chapters. There's lots of imagery, there's lots of weird numbers. And I'm aware that it was, it's quite information today. You might be sitting there thinking, great, but, well, you know, a lot of information, maybe less inspiration. Do you know what I mean? A lot more facts and figures. But, but I do think that actually we're called to love God with our heart, with all our soul, and all our mind. And I think that the more we understand how amazing God's Word is, it's not just a random book with nice words and that we read, but how this unveils Jesus to us, I think it leads us into a place of deeper worship and deeper love. I know that after writing this and thinking about this, when I was down at APC this morning and we were singing a song um, called Endless Hallelujah, I was just reminded of this passage. And I think I was able to step into a deeper place of worship because of it. So, so my hope is that in a minute as we worship, that this passage will allow us to go deeper into worship. That's one of our values here. One of our values is going deeper. But the more we know about God, the more we love him, the more we know of his word, we'll be able to step into a deeper place of worship. So if the band want to kind of get ready behind me, we've got a couple of questions I'm going to pose to you. We're going to sing a song, but we're going to invite you to remain seated as we sing that song. It's a bit of a new one. You might not know it. But you might want to use that time to follow the words on the screen. You might want to just sit and be still. You might want to read that passage of Revelation 4 again. But the question is for each of us, for each of us what does worship mean to you? Worship isn't just a sing-song it's not just raising our, our voices to a tune that we might like or might not. It's not an excuse to have a moan about hymns that we don't like or modern songs that we don't like. It's not, a, it's not about us. It's all about him and the throne. It's an opportunity for us to cast our crowns before him, the lamb that was slain. So maybe just a moment of quiet. We might want to close our eyes. Lord, we long to worship you in a deeper way this morning. We long for the, the symbolism and information from Revelation to actually there be an inspiration to us, to deepen our love for you, to deepen our eagerness to worship. Please come by your Spirit. Show Jesus to us. Like I said, I invite you to just remain seated for this song. The prayer ministry team would love to pray with you later. Um, after this song, I'll invite you to stand. We had a, a word for a finger pain. So if a, if a finger is giving you a bit of jip this morning, please go and get 
uh, prayer for that? Am I making that up? I'm being looked at. Oh, that was last week. Sorry. Well, if your finger hurts, go for prayer as well. But if your eyes, eyes have come up again, that's funny. If your eyes are hurting this morning, please do and go for prayer. So, Lord, we pray that you'd come and help us to worship. Holy Spirit, come.